What's up, Northeast? Yes! For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joseph. I serve here as the campus director. And guys, I, I love worshiping with the body. I love being here. I am so excited to dive in. Now, what some of you guys may not know about me is that the pastorate was actually not my first career choice. As a matter of fact, my father was a church planter, and so I watched him labor and struggle, and I was like, I'm, I'm pretty straight on that. And now that, that's another story for another day, how we got here, but the point of that is, like before this, I was actually a collegiate football coach. Yeah, and, and like we used to like get in huddles and hit people, and like that's what I used to do before this. And my final year at Jacksonville University, we, we had graduated the year before two seniors at corner. I coached secondary. And so my final year there, we had a true freshman who had played dual threat quarterback in high school. And we had a red shirt freshman who had played wide receiver the year before. And so like, obviously there's not that much experience there. So I would sit these guys down and I would tell them, yo, you, you want to be all-conference on the collegiate level? Here, here's a trick. Don't give up the deep ball. All right? If you want to be first team on the collegiate level, you're going to have to locate the football in the air and make a couple more plays than the next guy. And if you want to be all-American on the collegiate level, you're going to really have to learn to study film so that you can have elite in-game anticipation. Now, here's the thing about freshmen. If you're a freshman, no offense, right? But here's the thing about freshmen. They hear you without hearing you. You know what I mean? Like, they hear what you're saying, they hear what you're asking them to do, but then they just want to, like, run off and go do it by themselves. And so I would tell these guys over and over, like, the instruction, the call, the, the expectation is not enough for you to execute. Your 40 time will not make you all conference. I don't care about your high school accolades. They're not going to make you an All-American. Get this. These college receivers don't care how high you can jump. They're trying to eat at your expense. And these guys would look at me, and inevitably they would fall into one of two categories. Right? They would fall into this first category of kids that thought, man, coach is just extremely unfair. Man, the things that he asked us to do, they are impossible. And then there was this other group of kids that slowly but surely recognized that the things I was asking them to do was not impossible, but it was actually possible if sought to implement with proper technique. Like, y'all, you should have saw the way these kids would look at me, right? I'd be like, yo, in, in cover two, I really want you to rob the seven, right, and bang the hitch. And they, you could see it in their eyes like, what? Coach, that's, that's impossible. Right? But what they didn't understand is that if you angled your hips a certain way and learned how to determine the shoulder angles of the quarterback, and some of y'all are like, uh, yeah, football, home run, right, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. And that's okay, like, it's not for everybody, but here's the point, right? Like, if you just imagine that you're in a profession that college freshmen want to come in and pretend they know how to do your job better than you, you're right where you need to be, okay? And so here, here's the point, guys. Here's the point. Sometimes... The Christian walk can be like being a college freshman. 
We read these extremely high standards in Scripture, these calls to radical obedience, and like CJ and Calvin, the two freshmen I coached my final year at Jacksonville University, we hear the instruction and think, okay, we're good. Let's do this. We got it. We got the what, but guys, Scripture gives us also the how. But when we approach Scripture just asking the question over and over again, what must we do? We read a passage of Scripture like we read today, and our takeaway becomes do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Be humble. Count others more significant than yourselves. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Be blameless. Be innocent. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the issue with that, guys. Like, if we're honest with ourselves for just a moment, these commands are beyond us. Like, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Good God, all my thoughts, almost all of my thoughts are about my strategic advantage for my selfish ambitions. How my sinful heart obsesses over conceit and vain glories and the applause of men. Who on earth do I consider more significant than myself? I grumble. I do. It's in me. And guys, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've never been good at this. And as the failed efforts of our lives pile into a mountain of evidence declaring that we are not good enough, our college freshman begins to come out, doesn't it? Like, man, isn't God just unfair? Aren't the things that he's asking us to do impossible? But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The things that God asks us the obedience he calls us to, it can be done, just not in our own strength. Not only does God call us to radical obedience, but he gives us enabling grace to empower it. So take heart, Christian, for today the title of the sermon is Enabling Grace for Radical Obedience. We're going to see this in grace in the gospel Grace in great reward and grace in power. So let me pray before we dive in. Oh, Lord, we need you. Thank you for your grace. God, would you help us now to cast our eyes upon you, to see you for who you are? Oh, Lord, would you be exalted? Would you step forward? Would you push me to the back? Would you, oh, God, increase and allow me to decrease so that we may see your glory and be empowered to do the things you call us to do for the sake of your name? Jesus, we need you. pray all this in your name. Amen. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What mindset is this? going to say, 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you weren't here last week, Pastor Spence argued that the thesis statement for all of Philippians was found in chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, only let the manner of life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm. Here we go. We're going to go along that same line, right? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so it seems that this life worthy of the gospel is consolidated into a unified spirit, right? A singular mindset, and Paul is going to expound upon it and unpack it here in chapter 2, right? So he goes on to say in, in verse 2 of chapter 2, right, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and then he goes on in verse 5 to say, and have this mind. So, so as he continues to hone in on what he's after, he goes, same mind, one mind, this mind. And we see here that the mind that empowers us to live lives worthy of the gospel is none other than the mind of Christ. And it becomes clear that the radical obedience that Paul is calling to that, us to, that God is calling us to, is simply a call to be like Jesus. And we will see this very clearly in the text. And it is here that we encounter the first enabling grace, namely, grace in the gospel. Paul says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, did you read that? Did you see that? Oh, please do not let what is familiar rob us and blind us of what is unsearchable and brilliant and glorious. Do you see this? That Jesus was in the form of God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the invisible image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Through him, all things were created. Jesus in the form of God. And then comes one of the most astonishing verses in all of Scripture. Be in awe of it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just imagine, saints, having everything you've ever desired, perfect, deep, enjoyable relationships, unsearchable riches, infinite power, marvelous glory, worthy of worship. Would you consider that worth grasping? 
Would you consider that worth clinging to? Would you consider it worth fighting for? Of course we would. Brothers and sisters, we are graspers. Right? Like, oh, how we grasp for our things. Right? Like, we, we grasp for promotions. We grasp for influence. We grasp for security. We grasp for fulfillment. We grasp for purpose. We grasp. It is who we are. Constantly reaching for things that are beyond us ever discontent with our current state of being. And so it is amazing that Jesus, who is fully God, perfectly content, he is not reaching for something that is beyond him. It is not something that is out there. It is who he is. He is God, but he does not grasp. Instead, he he emptied himself. Pouring out privilege and status and glory. Like theologians wrestle with this. It's hard for us to grasp. There have been books and volumes written that could fill this room that God would empty himself and take on the form of a servant, becoming like a man and then being found in human form after having poured out that which would have kept him from persecution and suffering and death, he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even the most excruciating, painful, degrading death, death on a cross. This was his path. Do you see it? Do you see the downward spiraling staircase that Jesus walked? The path from exaltation to humiliation, the path from being the source of life to shameful death. Each step he took lower, filled with humility and obedience. And now here's the really scary part, saints. This is what God expects from us. Have this mind, the mind of Christ, a willing embrace of lowliness. Let me show you the connections as I overlay verses 2 through 4 with verses 5 through 8. Right? As I overlay the command over top of the life of Christ. When we do this, we see that Jesus counted a certain way, right? Like, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, look at this. Look at verse 3. Look at it. Put your eyes on the text. It says, he counted others more, count others more significant than yourselves. Is that not what he did? Right? Jesus was in the form of God, but in humility, he did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, brothers and sisters, the life of Jesus begs questions of us. Will we count as Jesus counted? Counting others more significant than ourselves, preferring others' eternal joy over our temporary comforts? Will we be humble 
as Christ was humble, not grasping and clinging to our rights and our status and our comforts. We will be willing to take the low place, obeying God even at great cost to ourselves. Will we be servants as Christ was a servant, stopping and washing the feet of those around him, touching the sick and giving himself away to the poor? Will we be obedient to the point of death like he calls us to? calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross that others may know the God who created them. And we may ask ourselves, right? Okay, I feel that. I think I can get down with that, but like, how much should we give? How much should we sacrifice? How much is enough? How low should we go? And saints, there is but one answer here as low as Christ. We must go as low as Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know that there are orphans in this city? Orphans who have no mother and father to care for them. We are the body of Christ. Do you know that there is poverty in this city? Do you know that there is a housing crisis in this city? Brothers and sisters, are you aware that there are people dying and going to hell every single day in this city? Christians, what shall we do? How shall we live in light of this reality? Oh, the life of Christ demands that we count them greater than ourselves. And it calls us, even at great cost to ourselves, to look to their interest above our own. But here is the good news, brothers and sisters. There is always more to be there. More good news to be found. The gospel, you see, does not only demand us to give our lives away, it supplies us with the grace to do so. We started this morning asking the question like, how can anyone keep these commands? Nothing? Nothing from selfish ambition? But now, with the reality of the gospel before us, the question changes, doesn't it? How can we, who have benefited from the sacrifice of God, live lives for our own ambitions? In the gospel, God counted us sinners more significant than himself. He counted us worthy of nails and us worthy of beating and us worthy of death and we deserved none of it saints do you recognize what God has done for you God's love for us has been extravagant we sing this song right like it's one of my favorite hymns my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. We sing that song, but saints, do we grasp what God has really done for us? God loved us, and we didn't deserve it. God loved us, and we didn't deserve it. I need to hear something else. Come on, saints. God loved us, and we didn't deserve it. 
Have we grasped that? Have we pondered it? Do we meditate on it? Do we comprehend it? Because if we do, we have no choice but to be ingratiated into gospel brokenness. We have no choice but to be molded into humility. In light of the gospel, what can we say that we deserve? God emptied himself. Should we exalt ourselves and our lives and our priorities when God died? The gospel jars us free from the disease of entitlement, does it not? And doesn't it catapult us into a life of selfless living? Not only by recalling, right, get this, it doesn't just recall to us, what God has done for us, but it also supplies us with tangible grace here and now, right? This is why Paul actually starts the chapter with the implications of what God has done for us, right? He doesn't just start in the activity of God, right? The incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, but he actually starts with the implications of the gospel. Do you see verse 1? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, there is. If there is any comfort from love, saints, you are held by God. Any participation with the Spirit, oh, you are indwelled by Him. Any affections and sympathy, saints, do you know Him? You know this God. You see, the command is sandwiched between the implications of what God has done and the activity of the gospel. And the point here, brothers and sisters, is that the command is drenched in grace. This is our motivation, the gospel and God's love for us. But here, I want to pause and draw our attention to a second question, right? Because if the gospel motivates us, what motivated Jesus? What motivated him to love us in this way? And I think this specific text answers that question in a word, namely reward. We're going to see the joy of Christ on full display as we dive into grace and great reward. The author of Hebrews is going to say that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> joy? Right? Like, do you ever read the Bible and be like, hmm, it's an interesting word choice. Right? Like, joy? What joy? And what we're going to see is that the joy that the author of Hebrews was referring to was none other than the joy of verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 begins, Therefore, therefore, because Jesus did not grasp at the equality of God, 
Therefore, because he emptied himself, therefore, because he humbled himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, let that rest. Oh, Siri, don't do that. (laughs) Let that rest on you. We're going to see that one day, saints. Jesus, high and lifted up, seated on a throne, his worship collective, his victory conclusive. Angels proclaiming his glory, the saints in a frenzy dancing. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue, both man and beast, will declare his lordship. And get this, saints, on that day, the cosmic existence will cease pretending as if they exist for themselves and they will turn every single eye upon the God who created them. That day is coming. And so, yes, this was his joy. Do you see, Jesus knew, Jesus knew the secrets of God. He knew the secrets of God, and, and yes, he tried to tell us, right? Like if we look, look in Luke 14, Jesus tells the, the disciples, yo, you see how everybody in here is jockeying for the best seat? Don't do that. Don't try to sit in the seat of honor. As a matter of fact, find yourself in the lowest seat. And when... When the guest of honor comes and moves you, you will be exalted. And the point was, he says this in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or he goes on to say in Luke 18, just four chapters later, yo, you see that Pharisee over there? You see him? You see how he's saying, God, I'm glad that I am not like that tax collector. And then do you see the tax collector? Do you see him beating his chest? Do you see him not even looking upon God? And he says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So do you see this? You see the example and the teaching of Jesus that he who places himself low will be lifted up. And the motivation for his humility was the ways and the promise of God. You see, Jesus endured the cross with anticipation of many great joys. He anticipated the worship of the redeemed as they worshiped their God made possible by his death and resurrection. He anticipated the glory of the Father as his grace was magnified by the saints. And yes, without question, he anticipated his own exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Christ suffered Humbly in obedience all the way to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly 
exalted him. And here is the magnificent news for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus' path leads to Jesus' destination. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' path leads to his destination. Look at Romans 8. It is beautiful. I love when the Bible ties itself together. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, do you see this? That when we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves and look to the interests of others, his therefore becomes our therefore. His promise becomes ours. His glory we share in. Oh, when we follow him to the cross, when we follow him to the low place, we can expect to be exalted. So then, saints, the question becomes simple. Like, will we be forward-looking enough? Will we lose our lives now that we may gain it in the end? Is the promise of future glory enough for us to spurn ourselves from a life of selfish gain? There's this riddle. It's a riddle that... Uh, Many parents have told their children, it's the story of an ant and a grasshopper. And all throughout the summer, the ant is laboring and laboring and laboring. And all throughout the summer, the grasshopper is playing and playing music and relaxing. And the ant looks at the grasshopper and he's like, bro, don't you understand? Do you not understand? Winter is coming what will you do? The grasshopper The grasshopper had no concept for future glory. We tell our children, don't be like the grasshopper. We save and invest for years of leisure in retirement. We sacrifice our present cravings for our future leisures, but oh, brothers and sisters, how we piddle away our time. Trading away eternal things for Netflix and future glories for comfort. Are we not more like the grasshopper than we think? God, help us. Help us, Lord. We need you. Can you help us to change? Hmm. Thank God for his word that says his grace is sufficient in our weakness. And his grace is plentiful. And the final component of grace that we will observe today may be just the most powerful, powerful grace yet. To this point, the grace that we have examined has been primarily knowledge, right? Like habit-changing, life-altering knowledge, but knowledge nonetheless. But the final pillar of the grace that we will examine today is simply 
sure power. Paul is going to return to the command, but then he's going to conclude with something glorious. Grace and power. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, get this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible ever just make you scratch your head? What happened to faith alone through grace alone? God, like, how am I supposed to do this? But y'all, Paul, he ain't, he's not playing, right? Like, he is tying. Do you see this? He is tying a lifestyle of obedience to salvation. Like, let's, let's center structure, sentence structure this, right? Like, if you remove out all the other clauses... The sentence was reads, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, what happens sometimes is we'll hear a sermon like this and we'll preach a sermon like this and then we'll get to the end and we'll get to the gospel and we'll insinuate, no, nah, you, really, you really don't got to do it. You really don't have to change. But Paul right here is like, nah, bruh, you really have to. This actually has to happen. Our lifestyles actually have to change. We really do have to give ourselves away for the sake of others. It is intellectually incoherent to profess that we believe that God has done what he has done for us and then turn around and functionally reject it with the way that we live our lives. Paul's going to say in Galatians 6, like, yo, don't be deceived. Like, don't get it twisted. God will not be mocked. Whoever one, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What's his point here? <laughs> he goes on in verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You squirming yet? Gosh, this is a hard text. Paul's like, you, you cannot fake it. Your belief in the gospel has to be authentic. Keep doing as a result of what you believe. Your college freshman coming up again? Are, are, we, are we doing enough? Wait, wait. Do we now have to earn our own salvation? Will, will God really hold us to this standard? I think he's being a little unfair. This really feels impossible. But saints, before we spiral, let us, let us take a moment and examine the text. It says, not just work out your salvation, do not grumble, be blameless and innocent. It says, 
therefore. Y'all see that? Therefore, work out your salvation. Meaning that because of what Christ has done, because of the promise of great reward, because of the gospel, we can and should work out our salvation. We've talked about this ad nauseum. That's been the point of the first two. But there is something else here. Right? If the therefore is one side of the scaffold holding up the command, on the other side of the scaffold is verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, do the impossible by the way I will carry you. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Do you see that the same God who calls us to radical obedience in verse 12 is the same God who empowers that obedience by his spirit in verse 13? When he says, have this mind among you, he goes on to say, by the way, which is yours in Christ Jesus? We are united to him. There is something miraculous happening as we seek to follow our Savior to the cross. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, is faithful to bring it to completion. Listen to what Paul is going to say in the very next chapter. Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That sounds a lot like Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more significant than yourselves. And so we're like, Paul, how do you do this? How did you go and count everything as lost? God, how? Oh, verse 9 is so beautiful. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a self-sufficiency that keeps me obedient, not depending on my own strength, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, from God's power, from God's work, from God's spirit. And he says that depends on faith. your righteousness, your ability to work out your own salvation, your strength to consider others more significant than yourself, your self-controlled rejection of grumbling, it comes from God. Paul is going to conclude Philippians in chapter 4 saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, not just for good beliefs, but for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you desperate to walk in this way? Jesus tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. And the author of Hebrews concludes his letter saying, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So do you see this, saints, that God is at work in you? He is at work in you. Before the beginning of time, God was working in you. At your conception and new birth, God was working in you. As you wrestle out your own salvation, God was working in you. And one day, brothers and sisters, he will cease his work, get up off the throne, unzip the sky, step through with all of his glory, and he will conclude human history. But until that day, he is working in you. Oh, saints, won't we then turn our eyes upon Jesus? Won't we do it? Won't we look full in his glorious face? Will we let the things of this world grow strangely dim to us in light of his glory, of his glory, of his glory and his grace? Oh, saints, that is the call. God has empowered the radical obedience he calls you to. Let us pray. As the band works its way up here, I want us to ponder a couple of questions. Question number one. Saints, what act of radical obedience is God calling you to? Our language here at Mercy is, what is your next step? He wants you. He wants your obedience. He wants your dependency. Talk to him. Ask him for help. Ask him for clarity. Ask him for direction. Question number two. Where does your faith need to be bolstered in God's ability to work in you? What do you need to believe about him? What do you need to believe about his character? What do you need to believe about his kindness? What do you need to believe about his power? Where are you doubting him, saints? He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you, he is faithful to bring it to completion. I feel some of you need to believe that. That he who began a good work in you, he is faithful to bring it to completion. Oh God, you are faithful. Oh God, we trust you. 
Oh God, we need you. So would you be our grace? Would you empower our obedience? Would you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? We love you. We pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen.